Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Well, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I may show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. These officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky... The Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flash down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all of the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and it stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed, since barley was in the ear and flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Good morning, Tim. Thank you very much for reading for us. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Exodus chapter 9. We're in the middle of a series looking at the book of Exodus, and we're trying to cover quite a large chunk of it this morning from chapter 7 through to 11, but focusing particularly on that reading of the plague of the hail from Exodus 9. Let's pray for God's help as we turn together to his word. We just heard from Exodus 9 these words, 
Let my people go so that they may worship me. Father, we do pray this morning that as we behold your power and your glory and the way that you work in this world, please would you be making us into a people that worship you and worship you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. I received an email this week from a, a well-known telephone and internet provider. Uh, without wanting to uh, name names, let's call them uh, Chat Chat. Um, perhaps some of you here have received an email from Chat Chat this week, I don't know. Um, but uh, the email begins with uh, some nice words of uh, warmth and encouragement and confidence, some lovely promises made to me as the valued customer of Chat Chat. I quote, uh, we chat chat, um, or now I quote, uh, take every action possible to keep your information safe. We constantly review and update our systems to make sure they are as secure as possible. Uh, Lovely words of uh, warmth and encouragement. It's nice to know chat chat care about me and will do all they can to keep me safe and secure. Then the email continues. Uh, We've been attacked by cyber criminals and they may well now have the following details. Uh, Your your name, addresses, date of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, talk talk account information, all your bank details and your credit card details. There's not much left after that. <laughs> I guess the name of my dog, but um, that's probably about it. Um, it kind of leaves you feeling like you can't trust the promises, doesn't it? They make these wonderful claims and promises over here. And then you realize they don't have the power to keep their word. You see, talk is easy. It's easy to make promises, great claims about what you'll do or how you'll care and protect. But it's quite another thing to have the power and the ability to actually follow through with your promises. I can imagine we have felt that way on many occasions with the people that we deal with, whether it's companies or friends, family, um, people we work for, making us promises, but then lacking the power to follow through with action. You can imagine the people of Israel feeling the same way, not about some internet company, that would be impossible, but about the Lord. You see, in these early chapters of Exodus, The Lord has revealed himself to his people as a God who cares, who knows, who remembers that they are enslaved and toiling under Egypt. He reveals himself as a God who remembers his promises and as a God who will keep his promises. These are words of of comfort and security, of promise about the future. And yet, by the end of chapter six, at the end of last week's reading, nothing's happened. It's just been words, just promises, and no action yet. And you can imagine the Israelites thinking to themselves, talk is cheap, but where's the action? Is the Lord really up to the job? And I guess some of us here today have asked the same questions of the Lord. Is he really up to the task of keeping his promises that he makes to his people today about his ongoing care and protection and about our future, the new creation, forgiveness of sins. 
in a world of toil and pain, it can be hard to believe God is up to the task. Well, talk might be cheap, but this morning we see God beginning to act. In our reading, we focused on this one plague of hail, but we're trying to cover all the plagues. And as we come to these plagues, I can imagine lots of questions come to our minds. Did they really happen? Could they have happened this way? Really? And they do sound so harsh. I hope as we go through, we'll answer some of those questions as best we can. But let us not miss the main point of what is happening in these chapters in Exodus. Did you notice a little phrase that was repeated again and again in our reading in chapter 9? Look, for example, at verse 14. We read, these plagues have come. At the end of verse 14. So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Or later on, verse 16. I raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Or verse 29. The thunder will stop and there'll be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Why 10 plagues? Why not uh, one or two or three? Well, 10 plagues because the Lord is showing us in all the color and drama and power of these plagues just how powerful he is. Displaying his name for the Egyptians, for the Israelites and for all the nations and for us sitting here this morning showing us what kind of God he is like. And we discover that he is the true God, unrivaled, all-powerful, and more than able to keep his promises. And the goal of this revelation of God to the world is so very clear. It's there in the verse I read right at the beginning, verse 13. The goal of all of this, let my people go, so that they may worship me. God is after a people of worshipers. He's after a people who believe that he is the all-powerful God who is able to keep every promise he has ever made to his people throughout all time and all generations. He is the one who can defeat every enemy and who can provide for all our needs. He is the one And he wants us to be worshippers who believe it and serve him. And can I say, as we begin this morning, if we know that our hearts have stopped worshipping the Lord, and perhaps if we're Christians and we realise that our Christian lives are more about habit and routine and duty than they are about joyful, sincere worship and adoration, then come before the Lord who reveals himself in Exodus and see again just how powerful he is how sufficient he is, and come and worship. There may be others here today who who aren't Christians, who are still thinking through um, the claims of Jesus. Can you trust this God? Well, come and watch and behold what this God does in the course of human history, and decide for yourself if you can trust him with your life. Well, three things I think the plagues revealed to us about the Lord. First of all, The Lord has power over all creation. Look at verse 22 with me. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Now as we hear those words read, some of us might be thinking, is God really at work in this hailstorm or is it a coincidence, an act of nature, if you like? Now, I guess we've all experienced uh, dramatic hailstorms, perhaps uh, scary hailstorms at time. If you search on the internet, you'll see pictures of, of hailstones the size of, of tennis balls, a lethal size. It does happen in the course of human history. Indeed, uh, people have written whole books on how all the ten plagues in Egypt can be explained by so-called natural causes. Apparently, um, minerals can seep out of the soil and and cloud the water red to look like blood. Or or the plague of gnats was nothing more than what happens on a typical Scottish summer day as you chase by midges across the hills. Or um, uh, various eclipses explaining the darkness. Anthrax causing the sickness. And it goes on and on. But this so-called natural explanation just won't do. It doesn't fit the narrative at all. And notice, if you will, the severity of the hailstorm. Verse 24. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Our weather forecasters love informing us with great gloom and severity that it's been the worst summer on record. We love to kind of look at the stats and think how we are placed in comparison to history. Well, this hailstorm, we are told, is the worst storm on record. Nothing like it in the course of Egyptian history. Then there's the timing of the storm. Verse 18. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the hailstorm, the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt. And sure enough, it happens just as God predicted. And then uh, look at how the storm ends. Verse 29, Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands and pray to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So that you may know that the Lord, that the earth is the Lord's. And just as Moses says, so it happens, verse 33, he prays and the storm stops. You see, this is no coincidence. This isn't some uh, lucky event for Moses. This is the Lord bringing about an incredible storm of hail with lethal impact. But I think most importantly, notice how Pharaoh responds to the storm. And we see that in verse 28. Pharaoh says, pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. You see, Pharaoh doesn't say, oh, oh Moses, you've been lucky again, well done, bit of coincidence. No, he says, pray to the Lord. Even Pharaoh, with all that's going on in his heart, and we'll think more about that later on, even Pharaoh recognizes that in this moment, it must be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has caused such a severe storm. 
And so we are seeing here that the Lord has power over all creation as he sends this extraordinary series of of plagues using creation in this way. Uh, When the story broke this week about the security breach at Talk Talk, uh, one security expert was um, interviewed and he was explaining that actually it's impossible to stop completely these kinds of security breaches. I quote, it's impossible, he said, to ever fully protect people's information and interests. There will always be a way, said the expert. And isn't that true with any human attempt to provide security and protection? There's always a way around it. It never lasts. It's never foolproof. And we've experienced that, haven't we? As we turn to other people to help us through life, to give us security and meaning, there'll be a point when they reach their end, when they have no more power, no more resources to help us. The doctor has no more skill to treat the illness. Our friends walk away from us. Our marriage cannot be the ultimate source of security we need. No amount of financial advice and wise investment can protect us from all the highs and lows of living in this world. No amount of wise advice on diet and health can keep us from falling ill. There is no way in this world to find ultimate security and protection. Except there is one who has the power to provide it. The Lord. You see, we're learning here that the Lord has power even over every drop of rain, over every ice crystal, over every virus and bacteria spore. He has power over water, over the sun and the moon bringing darkness. He has power over everything in creation because he made them. He is the Lord. He is unique. And I think these plagues help us to get perspective on life. They help us to lift our eyes from the microscope of our daily routines and the highs and lows of of Monday morning and the stresses and strains. And they they lift our eyes to see the big picture of what's happening in the world. And we discover that when we look around, the world is governed not by chaos or by random accidents or by evil, but it is governed by a sovereign Lord who made it. And of course, we see his power and glory most fully revealed in Jesus Christ, God on earth, who came with authority over the wind and the waves, over the evil spirits, over sickness, and even remarkably over death itself. What a thing it is to be able to know this Lord, the one who has the power to keep every promise that he has made. The Lord has power over all creation. That's the first thing we learn looking at the plagues. Second, the Lord has power to judge. I guess people today often make jokes about the plagues. They kind of refer to it in passing. You might have heard on the weather forecast when a presenter is warning us about a particularly heavy rainstorm coming. They might say that the rain will be biblical in its intensity kind of referencing the plagues, perhaps. Or we see cartoons of little mischievous frogs jumping around, causing annoyance 
and people kind of laugh about it and joke about it. It's kind of, it's sort of there in our cultural makeup. But as we turn to these plagues, it's no joke. People are dying here in Exodus 9. Back in chapter 7, as the Lord explains to Moses what is about to happen, he describes the plagues as mighty acts of judgment on the sin and rebellion of Egypt. And just in case we think the plagues are all behind us in ancient history, as the book of Revelation winds up the Bible, and as it describes a God of justice judging the nations who stand opposed to God, we discover that the author uses the language of plagues to describe how God will judge the nations. And so we have plagues behind us, and we have plagues in front of us. This is how God consistently responds to people who persist in rejecting him. And I should say that God's judgment here is not kind of petty irritation, you know, the kind of irritation that I experienced trying to park the car at Meadowhall on a busy Saturday afternoon. Uh, nor is it kind of spur of the moment anger where God flies off the handle. No, it, that's not at all what's happening. No, God is a God who is so very slow to anger. Did you notice as we've gone through Exodus how many times God has warned the people of Israel about what is to come? giving them time and space to repent because he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in grace. And when the plagues begin, they begin slowly and if I can say kind of quite gently, the first sign of plague is a a bit of wood turning into a snake. But then of course there is escalation as things get more and more severe as we go through the plagues. But after each round, there's a moment for repentance The Lord gives the opportunity. And even here with the hail, there are signs of God's grace. Verse 31, we might have missed this reading through it, but this is important to see. Verse 31, the flax and barley were destroyed since the barley was in ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. We might miss it, but here's an act of grace on God's behalf. He's leaving the Egyptians some food lest they starve. Even in the judgment, he is graciously given the means to survive for now. But the Lord has power to judge those who oppose him. Not before much warning or delay, however. Well, how does Pharaoh respond to these acts of judgment? Well, verse 27 tells us, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. This looks encouraging, like Pharaoh is repenting, but it doesn't last. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. I have a picture in my mind of that scene that we might see at a, at a British beach holiday. I know it's hard to imagine sitting here now in the kind of depth of autumn, but imagine, if you will, a summer holiday. It's by the seaside, it's warm, the sun's out, and the children are in the sea playing. And as children often do, they have a beach ball, and they're messing around in the water, and they're trying to see if they can get the beach ball beneath the surface of the water and 
and to see if they can balance on the beach ball. And you know how it works. It's not a very sort of stable setup. And eventually something happens and the beach ball comes popping back to the surface and the child's flung back into the water. Oh, it's a bit of fun for children at the beachside. But I think it's a picture of what is happening in this struggle between Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh, if you like, trying to suppress the revelation of God's power and sovereignty and glory and judgments, trying to keep it beneath the surface of his world, trying to suppress it, ignore it, do anything he can not to see it. But he can't keep it beneath the surface. It comes popping up and it throws him to one side and one time it will be the final time. Isn't that what the world is doing? Romans 1 talks about this kind of suppression and denial, trying to ignore the fact that there is a God who is powerful and who also will judge the world. Perhaps we think of friends who have come to church occasionally and they say afterwards, oh, we love coming, it's great to be here. And then you invite them to come back next week and they say, oh, do you know what, I'm not sure I'll come back anymore. And it's not because they've sat down and poured through all the evidence and weighed up everything and come to a rational reasoned position of denial. No, so often it's because they've just hardened their hearts to what they have seen of God's revelation. I heard someone say recently that the hardest thing in the world is the human heart. But the softest thing in the world is the heart of God. And when Jesus arrived on the scene many centuries later, he didn't come first bringing judgment that the world deserved. No, he came for the sick, for the sinners. He came preaching a gospel of good news, of forgiveness, of how to be washed. We've seen a picture of it this morning as Lord has been baptized. There is a free offer of washing in Jesus, if we repent and believe. And this kind and gracious man came on a rescue mission to die himself on the cross in our place that we may not die under God's judgment. But he did come also preaching a message of judgment. This kind, gracious man had more to say about judgment than just about anyone else in the course of human history because judgment is coming on the world on the world who stands opposed to God and his ways. And we live now in the moment of grace between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The moment of opportunity where there is still time to respond. And as we think about our friends, our family who don't yet know the Lord, our hearts should break for them. We should be urgent, longing that they come and hear the good news of Jesus. These plagues are just a foretaste of what is to come on that day when Christ returns. And so we see here that the Lord has the power to judge. Before we move on, I do need to tackle the the rather tricky issue of responsibility. Whose fault is it that Pharaoh doesn't believe You see, at times we are told that Pharaoh hardens his heart against the Lord. We saw that in verse 34 of our reading in chapter 9. Pharaoh says, I have sinned by standing in the way of the Lord. 
But at other times, we discover that it is the Lord who has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so, for example, in, in, in verse 12 of chapter 9, just before our reading began, we find this. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord has said to Moses. You see, who's responsible? Pharaoh for hardening his heart, or the Lord for hardening Pharaoh's heart? And this is no academic question for us this morning, because there'll be many of us here today who might wonder, will the Lord ever harden my heart? Is he hardening my heart now? Will I ever be able to come to the Lord and be saved and rescued? This is no academic question for us this morning. But what can we say? Throughout the Bible, we find two truths consistently upheld. We find on one hand that the Lord who is king over all creation is sovereign even over the hearts of humans, all humans. That he controls our hearts and he can harden and soften as he sees fit as he does with Pharaoh. On the same, at the same moment that we see on the other hand that again and again in the Bible, God gives humans free choice, that we are accountable and responsible for the decisions we make. And so often the Bible puts those two truths side by side in the very same story. Think of the story of Joseph and his brothers who chose to do evil to Joseph. Real decisions, real accountability, and yet we discover at the end that it was the Lord working the whole time to bring about great good to save a world. Think of Judas, who betrayed Jesus for greed. A selfish choice. And yet we discover at the end of the story that God had planned all along that his son would die to save many. Do you see, so often the Bible puts these two truths together side by side and asks us to believe both. And so too in Exodus. I think we get at times the kind of Google Earth satellite view of the world, looking down from above at the grand sweep of the world. And we see from that perspective that there is a Lord who is sovereign over everything. And he is at work in the course of history, in people's hearts and minds, bringing about his will. But as we zoom down to the Google Street View level, and as we walk around the market squares and into people's homes and see people going about their daily business, we discover that we have real choice real freedom. We are accountable for what we believe and how we live our lives. I look, if you will, at the example of the Egyptians in chapter 9. When news breaks out about the hail coming, verse 20, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. They make a choice. They respond to the news they've heard. But, but others, verse 21, ignored the word of the Lord. They left their slaves and livestock in the fields. Again, a choice not to believe or to take heed. And so if there are some here this morning who are struggling with this issue of, is God hardening my heart? I would say to you, come to Jesus. Come to God. It's a free invitation. The choice is yours. You don't need to worry. But come, don't run away. Don't harden your heart. For all of us, there is a question of what we are doing with the Lord's revelation that he's given to us. Are we becoming worshippers? Those who believe and rejoice in all that God has done? Or are we in danger of hardening our hearts 
and rejecting what God is doing in the world. The Lord has power to judge. Well, last and very quickly as we move towards a close, our final lesson from the plagues is this. The Lord has power to save. I love this. Did you miss a little detail in the narrative? You can just rush over it so quickly, but it's so important, it's so precious. It's there in verse 26. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. It is remarkable for a storm to consume a whole nation, to sweep in and, and, and bombard with such ferocity. It's remarkable that that storm sidestepped the little local neighborhood of Goshen, just went around it. And it's only because the Lord is keeping his people safe. We find throughout the plagues that again and again, the Lord makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. He protects his people as the judgment falls on the land. God is a God who has the power to save his people when judgment comes. And we find that reaching its climax next week when we come to the Passover. Do come back for that as we realize how it is that God makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the Egyptians. And it involves blood and it involves sacrifice. But lest we are in any confusion, the reason why the Lord saves his people and not the rest of the nations is not because his people are good or deserve it. We've seen, haven't we, throughout Exodus how quickly God's people grumble and doubt and fail to believe and become discouraged. No, it's not because we deserve it or are better. It's because the Lord is kind and gracious that he, has, that he saves his people. And as we think forward to the final day of judgment as Christ returns and judges the world, we see here a glimpse that the Lord will be able to keep us, his people, safe even on that day of judgment. That is the kind of power he has. We live in a world full of promises. Promises bombard us from all corners, from the TV screens, the magazines, the friends, the internet. But we know that so often talk is cheap and promises are broken. But not so with this one of Exodus. The Lord who has made the world, when he makes a promise, he will keep it, which means he will keep us safe through into the new creation. That is a God who is worth worshipping. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us when we play loose and fast with the revelation you give us. We thank you for these words given to us that we may know the Lord, that we may know his power. Please, would you help us to be people who believe that when you make a promise, you always keep it. And may we therefore be people who love you and adore you and worship you. Amen.